Last week we finished the first two chapters of Ruth and talked a little bit about what the book looks like from a Christian perspective, where you have a kinsman redeemer, marries the widow, and what I promised you today would be that I would talk about it from a Jewish perspective this time. Let's go ahead and go through it, and then what I'll do is I'll show you the perspective that at least Rabbi Foreman has. I don't know how common that is, but he's one that I like very much. So at the end of chapter 2, where we were was Ruth and Naomi had come back to Bethlehem, and Ruth was gleaning in the field, and she caught the eye of Boaz, who is her near kinsman, and he invited her to stay among his own laborers and glean the fields. And she gleaned through both the barley and the wheat harvests. And of course, the barley harvest is Passover. So they got back to Israel during the Passover season because she was gleaning barley. And she gleaned through the wheat field, which is Shavuot. So now we're down to chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, everybody knows the non sequitur here? It says at the end of chapter 2 that she stayed through the barley and the wheat harvests. At the beginning of chapter 3, they are winnowing and threshing barley. Could be a year later, could be a non sequitur, just don't know. But I'm just pointing that out as being of interest. So if you will, they are now back at the season immediately after Passover, the end of the barley harvest when they're winnowing the barley. So verse 3, Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So she replied, All that you say I will do. Ruth is a Moabite. She married a Jewish man, but they were in Moab during her entire marriage. And she doesn't know anything about being a Hebrew. The way this is apparently done, threshing floors are typically on the saddle of a ridge. So, for example, the temple was built on the threshing floor of Aruna, which is on a ridge in Jerusalem. The deal is you stack up your grain and you run either a threshing sled over it or if you are old school, you hit it with flails and you break the grain loose from the part of it that holds it on the stalk, and then you wait for a breeze, and you take the grain with shovels or baskets or something, and you throw the grain up in the air, and the breeze flowing across the saddle blows the chaff away. So you wind up with a pile of grain, which just goes up and comes straight down, and a pile of chaff which goes up and drifts down and forms a stack some number of feet away. And at the end of that, you bag up the grain and you burn the chaff. Well, this is payday for a farmer. 
what he's done is they have got everybody there, they've cut all the barley, and they have threshed it. And so at this point, you have a combination of a guard detail and a party. First thing you want to do is you want to stay with your grain until you get it bagged up and put in the storehouse so that it doesn't leave. So staying there overnight after you're done threshing it is a security measure. But the other thing is just payday. So it's a happy time, and they have good food and a little bit to drink and that kind of thing. So at the end of this process, when Boaz goes down to lay down to sleep, he's got a full belly, and he's probably had a fair amount of wine, and so he's zonked. Passed out is not correct. I don't think he would have drunk enough to pass out, but he's happy, and he's sleeping soundly. So at that point, what she's going to do is she's going to come to where he is sleeping and uncover his feet and lay up against his feet as he sleeps. So verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So she doesn't go wake him up particularly, she just snuggles up against his feet and lays there and he turns over at some point and says, whoa, warm feet. Verse 9, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. So a couple things. What does he say to her when he first meets her, the first time he sees her in the field gleaning? I know that you have done kindness to your mother-in-law by staying with her and so that she would have somebody to help her and all that kind of stuff. So now what we have has come full circle. And what he says is, not only were you kind to your mother-in-law, you have been kind to me. From this, most people assume, and I am very much one of them, that Boaz is an older man. She is still of childbearing age. I would imagine that he is a substantial man, probably in his 50s or more, because he's got servants, he's got fields, he's supervising people. You know, he's not a kid. He's got an eye for Ruth. He has had an eye for Ruth ever since the beginning. What he doesn't know from the beginning is whether or not it would be appropriate for him to court her because he is considerably older than she is. So when she comes and she makes this speech, spread your wings over me, for you are my near kinsman, what she is doing is she is proposing Leverite marriage. And by the way, she is perfectly justified in doing that because he is a kinsman and he does have the right of redemption. And she has a piece of land that belonged to her father-in-law, Abimelech. So she's not coming to him without assets. Even if he didn't think she was good looking, her assets would make her interesting. Whatever the assets are may be encumbered. That's entirely possible. But at the year of release, they come back to her free and clear, thing one. And thing two, the Torah says that if your brother has fallen into debt and has had to sell his patrimony, then a kinsman redeemer may come and pay off the debt 
and get the land back. So they don't need to wait till the year of release, but in either case, the redeemer can then go get it out of hawk, if you will. But it always remains hers, even though she may not have the use of it until the year of release because it's encumbered. She says, you are a redeemer, and I would like you to take me under your protection, redeem the property, and, oh, by the way, the thing that goes with that is marriage. That's understood. So her first child would be Elimelech's. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And what we're talking about here is reputation. Uh, you've got harvest festival, party, everybody's been drinking. And so the natural assumption is that for a woman to be on the threshing floor, that she's part of the party. So what he doesn't want to do is have people talk about her and ruin her reputation. So 15, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley she gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. What's happening is Boaz and Naomi are communicating over Ruth's head. Ruth got no idea what's going on. But Boaz and Naomi, both being Hebrews, are communicating with each other. And so what Naomi does is sends Ruth off like a missile. Ruth goes where she's told, delivers the message she's told, and Boaz then sends a message back. And the message he sends back in the form of six measures of barley is that this matter is not complete. I will complete it. Six is incomplete, seven is complete. Naomi obviously gets the message and says he's engaged and he will not rest until it's complete and he will probably get that done today. So chapter four. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside friend, sit down here. And he turned and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So what he's doing is setting up a minion and we're going to do some business in the gates. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know 
for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. So this other guy is a closer relative than Boaz is. And he says, obviously, that Naomi wants to dispose of this field. You have first right of refusal. And if you don't want it, then I will take it. And he said, he, the Redeemer said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz sets the hook. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Not quite sure what the encumbrance is, but the closest Redeemer says, if I do that, it's going to mess up my own inheritance. So I'll just let this pass. And since you're interested, go ahead and redeem it yourself. And now there's a ritual by which he is publicly shamed. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elamelech and all that belonged to Hilion and Mahalon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahalon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off among his brothers, and from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses this day. So the deal is, I'm taking all his property, I'm also taking his widow, and I'm going to marry her. And so at this point, his lineage will now be carried on through our firstborn son. And by the way, if you go back to the Torah, the idea of not building up your brother's house is a big deal. Here we don't do the spitting, we just swap shoes. Verse 11, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord would give you by this young woman. All right, we're going to talk about Perez, but that's sort of a left-handed compliment because you remember in the story of Judah and Tamar, Tamar, in order to get pregnant and perpetuate the line of her husband, dresses up like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. It's all going to be okay. We're going to get to Perez and Tamar and all that kind of stuff in just a minute. So verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So... Mazel tov. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. 
He was the father of Eshai, the father of David. So notice that just as the son is the son of Elimelech, so he is also the son of Naomi, symbolically, because Naomi and Elimelech were married. And so this young baby is now their son, quote-unquote, and will build up their lineage. So verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Solomon, Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Eshai, and Eshai fathered David. So that's the story of Ruth. Now let's do a couple of things here. What I want you to see is the entire book of Genesis is really the story of Terah. Abraham gets a lot of the ink, Joseph gets a lot of the ink, but the whole thing revolves around Terah. You all remember Terah. He is the father of Abram, or Abraham. And he had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran dies young. But Haran has got three children. He's got Ishka, Lot, and Milcah. Now, Ishka may in fact be Sarah. And the reason for that is both Ishka and Sarah mean princess. Ishka means princess and Sarai means my princess. So the speculation here is that Sarai is in fact Ishka. So what you have then is the three children of Haran who is dead. The two female children get picked up by the other two brothers. If you want this, I'll send it to you. You don't need to write it all down. Just send me an email. Happy to send you the chart. So Nahor straight up marries Milcah. And Abram probably marries Ishka. Abram takes Lot under his wing. Remember, Lot goes with him when he goes down to Canaan. So the two brothers, Abram and Nahor, take responsibility for their dead brother. Nahor, with Milcah, gets Bethuel. Bethuel gets Rebekah and Laban. And then Laban begets Leah and Rachel. So you notice that through Nahor's line, the matriarchs come. Abram, with Sarai, gets Isaac and Jacob. So through Abraham's line, the patriarchs come. So the patriarchs, both sides, mothers and fathers, all come from Terah. So now let's go over here to Lot. You remember Lot, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, winds up in a cave with his two daughters. And the two daughters get him drunk and impregnated by him. Moab and Ben-Ami are the two sons of Lot's daughters, begotten in the cave after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. From Moab comes by some distance, Ruth, and Ben-Ami, the son of the other daughter of Lot, somewhere down the line gives us Naamah. Naamah becomes a wife of Solomon, and Solomon then begets Rehoboam through Naamah. So what we have is all of Terah's children come together in the Davidic line. So Ruth and Boaz are a story of Leverite marriage, 
but the Leverite marriage, quote unquote, in the Hebrew it's Ibum, goes clear back to the brothers who were born of Terah. And the two surviving brothers get together to build up the house of the deceased brother. And it all comes back together. Now let me get a, another slide up here. So now, what we're going to see is how we get to Ruth and Boaz. And so in Genesis, you've got two incidents. You've got the Abraham story and the Joseph story. Those are the two big stories in the book of Genesis. Those are the two guys that get most of the ink. And so you're going along in the Abraham story, and all of a sudden, you wind up in Genesis 19, and you have this digression with Lot in Sodom. And then you pick up Abraham again. So you have Genesis 19 just sort of plopped in the middle there, and Abraham's story goes up to Genesis 18 and then picks up again on 20 and goes on. But you've got this sort of digression, if you will, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Similarly, down in Genesis 37, you've got the sale of Joseph. Then you've got this digression with Judah and Tamar. And then starting in Genesis 39, you go on with the story of Joseph. Now, a couple of things to notice about these. And you'll see on my chart here that out of Lot and Sodom, we get Moab, which is going to give us Ruth eventually. And out of Judah and Tamar, we get Perez, who is going to give us Boaz eventually. The thing that's interesting here is in both Lot and Sodom and Judah and Tamar, what you have is a woman tricks and seduces a man for the purpose of carrying on the line. So in Genesis 19, when they're holed up in a cave, Lot and his two daughters, his two daughters say, "Ha!" Huh, there is not a man in the world left to come into us and carry on our father's line. That's what they say. So what they do is they get him drunk and sneak in and cohabit with him, and both of them get pregnant. So they take the initiative. They get pregnant by trickery, and their stated objective is to carry on the line of their father. Come down to Judah and Tamar. We talked about that a bit earlier. What happens is Tamar marries Judah's first son by a Canaanite woman, Ur. He dies. Judah gives him Onan. Onan decides he does not want to impregnate this babe. And he dies because God is really upset with him. And then Judah looks at this gal and says, wow, she's bad luck, and decides that he is not going to give his remaining son to her. So what Tamar does, when she finally figures out that Judah is not going to give her his remaining son, she dresses up as a prostitute. Judah is a widower at this time. And so she stations herself where she knows he will come by and seduces him and gets pregnant. So her goal in life here is to get pregnant so that she can carry on the lineage of her dead husband. So in both cases, what you have is the woman tricks the guy for the stated purpose of getting pregnant, for the stated purpose of carrying on the line of, in Tamar's case, it's Ur's line. In the daughters of Lot, it's Lot's line. So you've got 
two entirely parallel stories here. I've laid out the diagram here so that you can see that in literary structure, they are exactly parallel. So now we come to Ruth and Boaz. Now, Ruth has the opportunity to do the same thing because she shows up in the middle of the night after this guy's gone to sleep and has got a snoot full of wine or whatever they're drinking, and he's laying there, and she could very easily pull a Lot's daughters on him. He's got an eye for her. She knows he's got an eye for her. So she shows up in the middle of the night when he's had a little bit too much to drink, snuggles up to him, and we have that story repeated a third time. Notice again, it's the woman who takes the initiative. But this time, instead of tricking him, she does the right thing. And she says, you are my near kinsman. I am asking you to redeem me. So there's no treachery here, no tricking here. So what I am suggesting to you is that the entire book of Genesis after the flood is really the story of Terah. And it's a story of how brothers get together to build up the house of their deceased brother. Abraham and Nahor take responsibility for the children of their dead brother Haran, and that path of responsibility goes all the way down and forms the kingly line of the nation of Israel. God doesn't seem to have a problem having the line of Messiah come through Tamar and Lot's daughters. And it will later come through Bathsheba, who was also a power player. If you read this gal's pedigree and you see how she weaves in and out of the Bible, she is very definitely a power player. And for her to just be taking a bath on the roof where the king can see it, I mean, God holds David responsible, okay? And I'm not arguing with that. He is responsible. But I think she was after him. The reason that Ruth is not simply a footnote in some other book of the Bible is because of the way she handled this. I think that's very true. She's been an upstanding lady all the way through this. When you see the sweep of the whole book and you see how it all fits together, you can see why Ruth is worth a book of the Bible. She's a righteous woman.